Is that supposed to be red or green? Is it on? Okay. It's been a long time since I've done this. And if it wasn't for Mark Hackathorne, it'd be even longer. I don't see Mark. What do you do, leave? Gee whiz. I bet where people, where Mark works, when people see him coming, they hide, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, <clears throat> I know next time when Mark Hackathorne's name comes up on caller ID, I'm not going to be at home. It's going to go to my mailbox, which I never answer. <laughs> uh, actually, I'm glad to help out John. I, I can't tell you how much John means to me personally. He, he really does. I... I just can't say enough about what he's done for our church and how he's filled in and how good his preaching's been. I just really appreciate that. But also, I realize there are times when uh, he gets swamped down with things. I did this, by the way, for five years before Seth came, and I was farming full-time, and it was, wasn't always easy. I had a lot of help from different people because I, I just couldn't do it. After working eight hours a week, I couldn't always uh, uh, do a good job preaching. <clears throat> I don't know if we have any readers in here, but do you know what a prologue is? Any of you, do you know what a prologue is? We have a few readers, okay. <clears throat> the rest of you, I don't know whether you don't read or can't read or whatever. <laughs> but in almost every book I read, there is a prologue. And uh, a prologue is a little snippet that tells you something about the book you're going to read. It, it may not even be directly related, but there'll be a little introduction of something you might see in there that has something to do vaguely. Sometimes it'll be a part of the book, but sometimes it just has something to do with the story. And so my prologue today starts with the book of Jeremiah. Now, uh, that's all I'm going to, the only book I'm going to have you to read out of today, so you might want to find that, but <clears throat> I'm going to quote some other scriptures, but we won't read all that. The date is about 600 years before Christ. Israel had fallen as far away from God as you can get. In fact, 14 years later, they would cease to exist as a nation because God was going to punish them for their sins, for their idolatry, for their indifference, for their immorality, for their neglect of the temple and the worship. It had gone on for years and years. And poor Jeremiah was the guy that was called to try to stop this thing. And he just couldn't do it. No one would listen to Jeremiah. He was considered a little bit out of his head. I always think it's funny on, on TV when they introduce uh, an athlete sometime after he's won a, whatever it is. I even did a to the jockey one a couple of weeks ago in the Kentucky Derby. And, and they said, he said, the first thing I'm going to do is thank my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And the announcer, duh, blah, blah, And they get sort of speechless. We're not used to dealing with Christians in our society, so we just, we just avoid them. We don't talk about them or talk to them at all. Well, this is a little bit what Jeremiah ran into. He was trying to call a nation back to God, but hey, they weren't going to listen. Why should they? Things have been going along pretty good. So Jeremiah in the 8th chapter poses this question here. Jeremiah in the 8th chapter, starting with verse 20. 
Harvest is past. Summer is ended. And we're not saved. For the brokenness of the daughter of my people, I am broken. I mourn. Distress has taken hold of me. Jeremiah, by the way, is called the weeping prophet. We can see why. But then he asks a question here. Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Why then has not the health of the daughter of my people been restored? And uh, Gilead was on the west bank of Israel. And it was known for its balms, its spices, for its healing ointments. And whether they worked or not, I don't know, but at least the people believe they did. And so Jeremiah sees all that's going on in this country, all the immorality, the idolatry, the wickedness, and he says, is there nothing, is there no doctor, is there nothing we can do about the immorality and the sinfulness of this people? He just asked a question. This was early in his ministry. Of course, the answer was no. Well, let's jump forward. Now we're done the prologue. Let's jump forward to the year 2009, about nine years ago this summer. My oldest grandson was getting ready to go to college, uh, Patrick Henry College near Washington, D.C., and he needed some wheels. We would say he needed a car, but he needed wheels. And uh, so I said, okay, I'll look, I'll take, keep my eye open what I can find over here, and Pretty soon I saw in the paper this little neat Honda Civic, like new, and the price was very, very good, very low. So I scooted out there as fast as I could one Sunday afternoon and talked to the gentleman and looked at the car. My goodness, this car is cheap. It didn't have a scratch on it. It was spotless and clean inside and outside. It had low mileage. Man, what could you ask for? What could be better? And, uh, but, you know, me... Being trained my, by my wife <laughs> to be a good shopper, whenever she, when I come home, she says, did you get this on sale? So I thought she'd be proud of me, so I offered him less money. He didn't even, he didn't even bat an eye, I said, yeah, I'll take it. Wow, I must be a good bargainer. So I, we made arrangements, and he said, well, now you have to go, uh, out to my father's house to pick up the papers. He said, I don't have them here with me. And so, uh, I don't know, maybe a week later, a few days later anyway, I went out to his father's house and I walked into the place and it was like walking into a morgue. Everyone was quiet and just down and looked so depressed and anxious and what in the world is going on in here? <laughs> Does that car mean that much to them? Well, it didn't take me long to figure out after talking a while. This car had belonged to their son. The son was a young man in his 20s. He was a school teacher. And he had committed suicide in that car. And they just wanted to get rid of the car at any price. They'd probably have given it to me if I took it away. I really felt, you know, didn't feel very good about the whole situation, so, but I couldn't back out of it. Now I already told him I'd take it, you know, I brought the check along and everything, so I went ahead with it. But my grandson, I didn't breathe a word to him as to what happened, because I know he'd feel strange. And uh, 
But my son, grandson took the car. It was a wonderful little car, and he drove it for about two years and then totaled it in an accident. Well, he wasn't hurt, but the car was completely totaled. And uh, the insurance company actually paid him more than after driving it for two years than I paid for it originally. So I know it was a good buy. Well, let's jump ahead four more years. The year is 2013. I pick up the Sunday morning newspaper and see an article in there by Tom Stafford. I don't take the paper anymore. Does Tom Stafford still write for the newspaper? He's a good, I think he's a good writer. He started out in his younger years as a sports writer. I think he's a very good writer. But Tom Stafford has a very large page, front page article, about two columns. Then we turn back to the rest of the newspaper. He had a whole section of it on suicide. And guess who he was dealing with? The very family that I had bought the car from. Now, it was a very long, uh, interesting article. But the victim's brother, which, whom I had actually met and bargained with about the car, and uh, his sister-in-law and his mother had started a new suicide prevention program called Excelsior. And I, I never heard that word before. I looked up the dictionary. I couldn't find it. So it must have been maybe it stood for something I didn't know anything about. <clears throat> Very long, interesting article in the newspaper. They... Uh, they dealt mainly with how to prevent suicide and looking for signs of suicide and what numbers you could call, what organizations you could call, and just generally uh, what you could do to help someone thinking about suicide. It was a pretty good article. And they even uh, quoted this, the head of the Center for Disease Control in Atlanta, Georgia. But meanwhile, they also talked to the Clark County Health Commissioner. They talked to the American Society of Su Suicidology, the Mental Health and Recovery Board, the local sheriff and police departments. The Center for Disease Control in Atlanta told him this. What were the main causes of suicide? Well, the first thing he says is the economy. Well, I can believe that because I, I've read about the Great Depression back in October of 1929 when, when the stock market collapsed and people lost all their money. There were people literally jumping off of buildings. So, well, it made sense a little bit. But then he said... <laughs> And uh, maybe this includes some of you. I, there's a high risk for some reason, he said, among baby boomers. And I got to scratch my head a little bit. What, what would make a difference when you were born? That's what he said. There's a high risk among baby boomers. So if you're baby boomers, then you might be a high risk for suicide. Don't ask me why. And then he said because of opioid overuse. Now, he's not talking about casual or recreational opioid. He was talking about the people who take opioid legitimately for pain. And sometimes when the pain would get so bad, they would just take more to try to help their pain and they would die from it. And then he talked about PTSD, which you hear so much about today, post-traumatic stress syndrome. Now, I'm going to go off on, on a tangent a little bit here. Our society is not very good at connecting dots we see something and we say, well, if we just spend more money, we could solve this problem. If a school is bad and has failing grades, let's just give them more money. That'll, that'll settle a problem more. We, we don't do very good at connecting dots in our society. For instance, there's another uh, gun shooting you all probably heard about it there in Texas. And well, the solution is simple. Just take the guns away from people. We can't kill any people anymore. 
The only thing is, in Canada and Europe, they've taken the guns away from people, so they just take cars and run down the sidewalks and run over people. See, we, again, we don't, in our society, we don't connect the dots very well. We don't deal with cause and effect at all. Well, this post-traumatic stress syndrome, I think it's strange that in World War II, my father was in World War II, millions of men came back and they just got a job and went to work. Now, some of them had some unpleasant experiences. They didn't like to talk about it, didn't dwell on it, but they just went back to work. And in Korea, we had thousands of people come back from Korea, and I knew several of them myself. And they just went back to work, got a job. But somewhere along the line, I don't know where's Vietnam or in Desert Storm, but all of a sudden we started seeing this word crop up, PDSD, post-traumatic stress syndrome. And is that something new? It's, and I believe it's real, by the way. I believe it's, it's not imagined. It's not, people really do suffer when they're faced with stress. But during World War II, those men sometimes would stay in combat for a whole year. In Desert Storm and some of these uh, deployments now, they stay over there for a year and they maybe go out once a month and they get shot at and they shoot at a few people and they come back. It seemed like it's not even a comparison. What is it about our society now that we get PTSD and we didn't used to? Something is going on in our society and we don't address that very well. <clears throat> well, <clears throat> so, but one thing I noticed about uh, all this deal about the uh, suicide article was that no one dealt with the why. No one dealt with the why. They just addressed what you do, what are signs of suicide, and numbers you can call, and people you can contact to prevent suicide. That's great. I mean, that's necessary. But someone has to deal with why are people doing this? Well, I'm going to quote, uh, I'm still John's thunder there. He quoted Eric Erickson a few weeks ago. He's a psychologist. And he says, if we see our lives as unproductive, feel guilt about their past, or feel that we did not accomplish our life goals, we become dissatisfied with this life and develop despair, often leading to depression and hopelessness. And that, that describes a lot of people in our society, doesn't it? Again, if we become dissatisfied with life and develop despair, it leads to depression and hopelessness. And I think that's <clears throat> what they pretty well do. <clears throat> Again, our society doesn't really look beyond just surface things at all. Uh, for instance, we visited the Springfield Museum of Art uh, two or three weeks ago. And by the way, we have a very famous artist, Jessie, was in that Springfield Museum of Art. I don't know if she's still there or not, but they had a display of Shawnee students, and she was one of them. But the main display was a big display along, I don't know how many pictures on the wall, black and whites, of millennials, famous millennials. This, uh, this uh, photographer had taken pictures of famous people all the United States, maybe some of them weren't Americans, I can't remember right now, and he would have a big picture on the wall, and he would have a short bio about them, telling what they did. Most of them I'd have heard of, but some of them I, I had no idea, probably musicians. I, they were rock musicians. I didn't have any idea who they were. Uh, but they had sports figures. They had politicians. They had entertainers. They had musicians, and you name it. They had all these people on the wall. 
millennials. I think that's the people who were born after the baby boomers. I never can keep that straight. So you, you're millennials if you were born after the baby boomers. I don't know when the baby boomers, boomers started. But, you know, when I got through that thing, I, I just asked my question, self, one question. There was not one person in those pictures on the wall that was a person of faith that said anything about their faith in Jesus or their belief in God. You mean to tell me all the millions and millions of millennials that were born that not one Christian accomplished anything in life worth talking about? That's what the artist must have thought. Well, you say, he, he didn't really believe that. Well, he must have. He left them out, didn't he? That's, that's what our society is doing. We're, we're closing the gates on God and they thought about faith at all. And then we wonder why our society is crumbling like it is. It's not hard to figure it out. Could it be that we talk a lot about suicide for prevention, but never talk about the God who gives love, hope, peace, and joy that passes all understanding? The closest anyone ever said in this article, they quoted the family members, was one of the people who was talking to a suicide prevention audience one day said this, and she was quoting the 14th Dalai Lama. I don't, I don't know who the first 13 was, much less the 14th one. But sound pretty good. It says, uh, love and compassion are necessities, not luxuries. Without them, humanity cannot survive. Hey, I, I'd agree with that. I don't know how many people read the 14th Dalai Lama. It sounds pretty good to me. But I can read from 1 Corinthians 13, a love chapter in the Bible. Paul says, If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Love is patient, love is kind, and is not jealous, does not brag, and is not arrogant. Go read 1 Corinthians 13 and see if that is an improvement over the 14th Dalai Lama. But people don't care what 1 Corinthians 13 says. Well, let's go back to 2,600 years then, still in Jeremiah's time. We're going back to Jeremiah. This time I'm going to read in Jeremiah 19. Jeremiah's been preaching a long time. He's getting sort of tired, discouraged. I'm reading about Jeremiah from 19, verses 6 through 9. And Jeremiah is speaking to the people. He's preaching. Therefore, behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when this place will no longer be called Topheth or the Valley of Ben-Hinnon, but rather the Valley of Slaughter. Wow. He's telling it like it is. I will make void the council of Judah and Jerusalem in this place, and I will cause them to fall by the sword before the enemies and by the hand of those who seek their life, and I will give over their carcasses as food for the birds of the sky and the beasts of the earth. I will make also this city a desolation and an object of hissing. Everyone who passes by it will be astonished and, and hiss because of all its disasters. Wow. Verse 9, it gets even worse. And this literally happened. 
I will make them eat the flesh of their sons and the flesh of their daughters. They did this. This, this city was besieged by Babylon from two to three years. Of course, it got so desperate, they had nothing to eat anymore. They began to eat their own children. Don't, I hope there's no children hearing this. <laughs> I'm getting some nightmares. But... Uh, <clears throat> Well, then, after he says all this, they, they finally straightened up, didn't they? Well, how did they respond? Jeremiah 20, verse 1 and 2. When Pasher the priest, the son of Emmer, who was a chief officer in the house of the Lord, heard Jeremiah prophesying these things, he had Jeremiah the prophet beaten and put him in stocks. That'll shut the guy up. He can't dare say anything like that. He can't say anything bad to us. We'll take care of him. Well, Jeremiah finally got out. He kept on preaching and teaching. And finally, toward the end of the whole event, by the way, if you read Jeremiah, it's really an interesting book, but Jeremiah has um, 42, 46 chapters. They're not in chronological order, so sometimes it's sort of confusing. So we don't always know what time it was. But nevertheless, in Jeremiah 38, verses 2 and 3, They are now under besiege. Zedekiah is the king. They're besieged by the Babylonian army. They've been under siege for years. And so Jeremiah is just simply trying to save their lives. He says, Thus saith the Lord, He who stays in the city will die by the sword and by famine and by pestilence. But he who goes out to the Chaldeans or the Babylonians will live and have his own life as booty and stay alive. Thus said the Lord, this city will certainly be given into the hand of the army of the king of Babylon, and he will capture it. Well, it sounds like they're trying to, uh, you know, pretty, give him pretty good advice. Well, verse 6, we found out how he listened to this advice. Then he took Jeremiah and cast him into the cistern of Malkijah, the king's son, which was in the court of the guardhouse, and they let Jeremiah down with ropes. Now in the cistern there was no water, but only mud, and Jeremiah sank into the mud. We don't have to listen to him anymore. He's in the cistern, standing in mud up to his waist. We don't have to listen to Jeremiah anymore. We got rid of him. Well, in 586, Babylon was captured. A very sad time for Israel. Israel ceased as a nation and never became a nation again until 1948. But, you know, Jeremiah and the other prophets told them over and over again what was going to happen. They said, oh, it can never happen to us. It can never happen here. But it did. The very same thing happened. We told you about the people being starved and turned to cannibalism. Well, the very night the walls were breached, Zedekiah took his family and put them all in chariots and horses and tried to escape at night. And they did get away. But the Babylonians obviously followed them, brought them back, and right in front of Zedekiah, he had all his family killed, all his wives, children, everyone killed right in front of Zedekiah. They put his eyes out and took him back captive to Babylon. Many thousands of people had died. They took all the ones who had not died, who had any uh, craft at all, back to Babylon. There they were prisoners. And the ones that were ignorant or maybe just uneducated, couldn't do much, they left them there. But they also then burned the city. Burned that beautiful Solomon's temple that stood for many, many years. They burned David's house. They burned the whole city down and then pulled the walls down. Babylon, or I said, Jerusalem never became 
a city and a, and a country again until 1948. I, I am not uh, trying to, to be a prophet and tell you this is going to happen in our country. I, I have no vision, no nothing, no foreknowledge of what's happening. So that isn't the point of what I'm trying to say here. What I'm trying to say here is that we don't have a very good way of dealing with tragedy and problems, crime and drugs, anything, because we don't, we don't connect the dots. We don't figure out why. We just deal with the symptoms. Just spend more money and we'll solve the drug problem. Many people are dying from opioids, so just spend more money on counseling and homes for them, and, and we'll get rid of the problem. Well, as I said, spending, I wish spending money could solve everything. It doesn't. <clears throat> in French class, I had to read a lot of material by an author named by Albert Camus. I didn't read that in English. I had to read that in French. Albert Camus was one of the most famous writers. And <clears throat> he was a philosopher. He was awarded the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1957. He died in 1960. But he was really, the people were really proud of Albert Camus. But you know what he, his, uh, <laughs> what he was known for? He was known for his philosophy of absurdism. Absurd as in stupid. Absurd as, as in crazy. Absurd as in ridiculous. That's what Albert Camus was noted for. I've read some of his, his articles and his essays. <clears throat> but one thing, when I after read why he thought that, thought about, talked about absurdity, was that he understood society. And for instance, one thing he said about suicide, he said, suicide is absurd. I don't understand why people do it. Why would you take your own life? He couldn't understand that at all. Well, <clears throat> he says this. And I, don't know, I don't know what Albert Camus believed about God. But he says that the problem of why, it, why society is so absurd is this. And I agree with him. He says, man is involved in a futile search for meaning and unity and clarity in the face of an unintelligible world devoid of God, eternal truth, and values. He, he's not so absurd, is he? Man is involved in a futile search for meaning and unity and clarity, which we all want, in the face of an unintelligible world, and that's why we describe a world. Our world as we see it today is unintelligible because we're devoid of God, eternal truth, and moral values. Well, Camus wrote a long essay about the myth of Sisyphus. Have anyone heard of the myth of Sisyphus? I almost sound like it's talking about venereal disease, but it's not. S-Y-S, S-Y-S-Y-T. P-H-U-S, Sisyphus. Well, he, it's an interesting article. I've heard of him before, but... <clears throat> well, Sisyphus was a Greek legend, and he did something to make the Greek gods angry, which the Greek gods are always angry and doing something stupid all the time to punish people. So they got this punishment, thought this punishment up for Sisyphus. We're going to make him roll this big rock, huge stone up a mountain. So he 
Sisyphus gets busy. He pushes the stone. He grunts. He moans and groans. He finally gets the rock up the top of the mountain. But Sisyphus isn't done. The rock rolls back down again. So he goes back down. He does this again. And he's condemned to do this for an eternity. Up, down, up, down, up, down. Sounds like a terrible torture to me. But you know, uh, by the way, Camus wrote a whole essay on Sisyphus. And he said, <clears throat> he said, this guy was probably happy. I thought, happy? How could a guy be happy rolling a big rock up a mountain and having to roll back down doing it all his life? He was happy for, number one, he had something to do to keep him busy. And secondly, he was happy because he never had to think. He didn't think about such questions as, What's life all about? Why am I here? Is there any meaning for life? Am I doing something worthwhile? Is there life beyond this life? He didn't have to worry about those questions. And that's why Camus thought the same thing about people. He said people just get so busy in sports and entertainment and going on and on and on, they don't think about anything. He says people don't think about any meaning in life. People don't think about God. People don't think about anything. But where's the next meal come? Who plays the next game? Where are we going on vacation? Well, when people, I think, ask those questions, sometimes they become depressed and anxious. So just don't ask them. Just don't think about it. You don't have to worry anymore if life has any meaning or purpose. By the way, Camus was involved in a big startup program back when uh, several philosophers in France started what they call the philosophy of existentialism, which is a big word, but it simply means people were trying to find what life was all about. Well, anyway, getting back to... <clears throat> you know, I was just thinking, all these people that have thought about and read about all the things about suicide, I have an idea they have never heard the words, come unto me all you that are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. You think they ever read that verse before? How about my yoke is easy and my burden is light? Did they ever read the words of Paul when he says, I have fought a good fight I have finished the course, I have kept the faith. Therefore there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness which the Lord will award me on that day and not only to me but to all those who love His appearing. Suppose you've ever read that verse? How about another verse where Jesus said, I will never leave you or forsake you. We used to have a, an organization called the Gideons come to our church and if you don't want the anything about the Gideons, if you ever look in a, in a motel room, they still do it, by the way, even in, in across the, in Europe and places, they still, they have Bibles in the drawers of motel uh, uh, chests and so forth. But the Gideons, all, all they do, they don't say anything, they don't have any literature, they just leave the Bible there. Well, it's nice, but does anyone ever read it? They spend literally millions of dollars to put Bibles in, they used to do it in schools, I got my first Bible in school, but of course, we, we don't do that anymore, we can't do that. That's definitely not right. But 
uh, one time Miss Gideon came to our church here and he would, they would give a small talk and then take up an offering. And they did that for several years. Some of you may have remembered that. But I remember one story that Gideon told I never forgot. And he said this one man had gone to this hotel room with the idea of shutting himself out and taking his own life. But while he was there, I guess maybe he was having some second thoughts. I don't know. He, he looked, opened a drawer and there was a Gideon Bible. He took the Gideon Bible out. And we know this, by the way, because he contacted the Gideon Society and told them what had happened. He took the Bible out and began to read in the Psalms. Now, the 150 Psalms, and I don't know what he read. The Psalms are a lot, they have Psalms of encouragement and Psalms of prayer, praise. It's a, a, lot of, it's a big mixture of everything. But I don't know what he read, but whatever he read convinced him his life was worth living. He closed the Bible and put it away and went back home. Folks, somehow or another, we, we've got to connect the dots. Is life worth living? Is there anything more than just having a job and earning a living and going to a movie, going to a game? Well, I, I hope, I think most of you would agree there's more to life than that, but Lord, many of your friends and neighbors have never heard the words, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. Shall we pray? Father in heaven, you love us with an everlasting love. Underneath are the everlasting arms. We believe in you, we hope in you. Thank you for making life worthwhile and giving us something to live for. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.